Wow, what a crowd this morning. Uh, maybe you've come because you heard there's going to be awards here to make announcements. Or may- maybe you've come because tea and toast is back on as of today in the hall after the service. So uh, if, you, if you got lucky and just happened to turn up, well, uh, blessed are you. Uh, maybe you've come because you want to know the Lord Jesus better, which is what we're looking at today as we come to Matthew's Gospel Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for the Gospels that tell us about the Saviour and King Jesus. Help us as we come to terms with him and what he was about uh, to be those who trust him uh, and we're prepared to follow him wherever he leads. Amen. At some point in life, everybody gets sick or faces disaster, and eventually everybody dies. Uh, That's a very happy way to begin a sermon, isn't it? (laughs) I don't mean to be a downer, particularly when the passage we're looking at today is so full of hope and joy and healing and salvations, but but that's the problems that we all face, isn't it? Everyone faces it. Uh, The problems that the people in the passage certainly had to face And they're the problems that we face in life. And if we haven't faced them personally, we're going to. Although looking at this crowd, I suspect you all know uh, a lot about sickness and disaster and death. I mean, you just have to watch the news the last couple of years. And that's all it's been, hasn't it? With COVID and millions dead and millions more sick. And and the other things that have come as a result of the isolation, the job loss, the, the economic changes and challenges, the the family violence and breakdown, Uh, there's, you know, the floods and before COVID there was the fires and lives lost, property ruined, Uh, there's the war in Ukraine, 15,000 people dead already, 3,500 civilians Uh, amongst that, homes lost, cities destroyed, people uprooted. Uh, It's a kind of mess there that thankfully we haven't had to face, at least recently, and, but we're all keenly aware of. It's it's in our conversations and uh, it hits us with our fuel prices, amongst other things. But, but those are just the news stories of today. But people and families and everyone's had to face those kind of things all throughout history. And uh, they've always had to deal with sickness and disaster and pain and death. And even with all the power at our disposal all of our learning and technology, with all the marvels of modern medicine where clever people can come up with vaccines and treatments so quickly. Well, even sickness keeps outflanking our cleverest strategies and just mutates. A new one comes along. The weather, no one can control that. Uh, And ageing and death, no one's ever been able to solve those problems And so people wonder, don't they, in a world like that, if there's a God, is he, well, is there a God when the world's like that? Uh, Maybe uh, some people wonder because they've prayed in the midst of situations like that and asked for help and, and nothing's happened. For others, it's the intellectual problem. If God's supposed to be all good and he's supposed to be all powerful, How come suffering and evil exist? Surely if he's all good, he'd want to do something about it. And if he's all powerful, he would do something about it. He'd come and fix it. But it's all still here with us. And so they conclude that either he's not all good or he's not all powerful or he's not there at all. 
And, and that may be something that you've wondered. Why, why is it like that? And how can God be there? But I want to ask you, to, if you, that's your question, or maybe you could pose this to friends who've asked you the same question, maybe you could respond by asking a couple of questions back, and maybe you could ponder these. I think the first question to ask yourself is, if God was going to come and do something about suffering and evil, what is it that you'd have him do? What would you want him if he came down? How would he solve it? How would you have him solve it? I mean, if he came, surely he'd, he'd, he, you'd want him to wipe out everything that's contaminated with evil. Would you want that? Well, you might, unless you were part of the problem. <laughs> but most of us don't think of that, do we? When we want God to deal with suffering, well, it's my suffering that I want him to deal with. But when it comes to God dealing with evil, it's, it's other people's evil. You can deal with their evil, not my evil. right? It's, it's other people. It's them out there. It's Putin and Trump. Uh, it's, or if you're pro them, it's Biden and Zelensky and it's the bad guys, it's them, it's not me. But, but what if I'm part of the problem such that if God did come down to clean house, I'd be swept out with the rest? Second question I think to ask yourself is, have you ever stopped to wonder if God has something to say about the question? you know, why he's there and yet these things exist. When people throw out stuff like that, it's almost as if they think that the Bible has nothing to offer, has nothing to say about evil and pain, where it comes from, why it's here and what God might be doing about it. But actually, the whole Bible's about that question. God's got lots to say about it. This is what he's got to say about it, where it comes from, uh, about the way that evil contaminates us and affects us and others in the world and, and how it all stems from our turning our backs on God, our living for ourselves as if we were God. In fact, the, according to the Bible, suffering and death are God's response to our evil. And that's what God's done about evil. He's brought pain and misery and death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Which is why, if death's the punishment, why, why sickness and pain and disaster and ageing happen in our world? Not that every sickness and every disaster can be tied to a particular sin, so that if I'm doing okay at the moment, it must be because I'm God, good and favoured by God, and if I'm sick, well, I must have done something particularly bad. It's not like that. It's not, it's not the law of karma or the law of attraction, which are both New Age and Hindu nonsense. It, it's more general than that. Sickness, disaster and death are in the world because God has cursed our race and our world. But the Bible's not just about the cause of suffering and evil, really the whole thing's about God's answer to it. And God's answer, his solution, all hinges around Jesus Christ. And we get a glimpse of that in today's passage in Matthew's Gospel. As we pick it up after we left off a couple of years ago, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we heard that. But we turn from Jesus' teaching to, to what he was here doing. Uh, and those are the issues that Jesus is dealing with in our passage, isn't it? Sickness, disability, evil, disaster, people in danger of death in lots of different circumstances. 
the aura of death surrounds everyone who's involved in the passage. And while it's not the final solution that we're seeing here to the problems of suffering and evil, it sure does show us that God cares and that God is willing and able to do something about him. That's clear. And even better news is they're pointing to something even greater, the real solution that God has already planned and he has promised and he is bringing about from the beginning. But again, you read a passage like this in Matthew 8 where all these amazing things happen and you think, did they really? Is it, yeah, I, miracles don't exist, do they? I've never seen one, I've never experienced it, and lots of smart people don't believe in them, so yeah, it's all a bit too good to be true, a bit too fantastical. Maybe it's a myth, a legend. And, and strange enough, it's often the same kind of people who, who create the intellectual conundrum about suffering and evil and God, uh, who, who say that they love God to come and do something about suffering and evil if he's there, but won't believe it when he does. But there was no doubt that Jesus did these things. They happened. That there were so many witnesses there. I mean, the crowds came, some who loved him, some of them who hated him. So many lives changed. So much astonishment every time it happened. How could that be? Who is this man? Uh, in such bizarre and, and different circumstances and places. And, and, and even the people who hated him, who wanted to get rid of him and wanted to discredit him, they admitted it during his life, after his life. Uh, contemporary writers, Christian and non-Christian, both talk about the, the worker of wonders, Jesus, who was called the Christ. So this is history we're reading. It's not fantasy. It's not mythology. And even more fascinating to me is the fact that Israel, where this stuff was happening, well, they were God's people. This is God's nation. And God had promised over and over again in the Old Testament to bring into existence a new age, a new age where there wouldn't be any sickness and mourning, where all that would be taken away, where, where there'd only be joy and prosperity. And in particular, when he makes those promises in the Old Testament half of the Bible, they're all tied up with the coming of someone he promised to send one day, the Messiah. That's a Hebrew term. The, in Greek, it's, it's translated as the Christ. In English, it's the anointed one, God's king, God's saviour. And the Jews in Jesus' time, they, they knew those promises. They knew them well. They were longing for them. For hundreds of years, they had been longing for the Messiah to come. They expected him to come. And when he did come, all of these blessings would flow because he would come and heal them from their afflictions, their sicknesses, their oppression, their disaster. He would come and destroy the enemies of God and his people. Uh, all the troubles would be over. He'd bring forgiveness and healing and there'd be no more sorrows. And so in a sense, when Jesus came and started doing all these incredible miracles, they're exactly the sorts of things that you'd expect the Messiah to do. He cleanses the leper in verse 4 verses. He raises the paralyzed servant who's suffering in verses 5 to 13. He heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law from a life-threatening fever. We're not told if Peter's too happy about his mother-in-law surviving or not, but I, I assume he was. 
I'd never hear the end of it otherwise. Anyway, so <laughs> Jesus saves the disciples from the two men, uh, sorry, from the terrible storm in, in verses 23 to 27. He drives out evil spirits of the two men in that dramatic way at the end. But, but those are just a few of the miracles that Jesus did. We'll hear more of them next week. Matthew's kind of gathered all of them together. I don't think it's necessarily chronological, but here's the kinds of things Jesus was doing. He's picked examples. But notice verse 16 in our passage in Matthew 8. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So Matthew's not writing down everything that Jesus did, just a few. And, and an interesting few, because they show the range of problems that Jesus dealt with and could fix storms, leprosy, paralysis, demons. <laughs> but it's not just the range that he's showing us. I, I think there's five particular elements that Matthew wants to point out to us, and I want to draw your attention to them. Five significant aspects of Jesus' healing ministry. The first one is touch. He reached out and he touched the leper in verse 3. He touched Peter's mother-in-law in verse 14. Uh, no one would ever touch a leper. And a leper would never touch anyone because they were unclean. And anyone who touched the leper would be branded unclean by everyone else. It wasn't just that they risked catching a dreadful skin disease uh, that the person had. It was a spiritual matter. <clears throat> Someone with, with a skin disease like that, where bits fall off you and you don't feel the pain and your toes fall off and you don't even know you've cut your foot, that's, that's what leprosy does to you. Um, they, were, they were thought to be under the judgment of God. And that judgment from God would come on anyone, would con would, on anyone who touched the leper or accidentally brushed up against them. And so as a result, lepers were completely separated. They couldn't join normal society. They couldn't live with their family in the family home. They had to live outside of the community in the leper colonies. They, they, uh, only other people there were lepers. And if anyone came close, you had to call out if you were a leper, unclean, unclean, unclean. So everyone would steer well clear of you. You weren't endangering them with the judgment of God. <clears throat> and they were religiously separated as well from everyone else. They couldn't go to the temple where you would make sacrifices for your sins to, to have forgiveness and to give thanks. And, and so they were very much like the poorest of the poor in India today, the untouchables, right? The low class that shows, shows you the evil of Hinduism. But, but Jesus reached out his hand and touched the untouchable. And instead of being defiled by the man, Jesus cleansed him. He'd come knowing that Jesus could heal him. It wasn't a question of power. He knew Jesus was able. It was a question, his question was whether Jesus was willing to heal him. So there in verse 2, he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Was Jesus willing? You bet he reached out, touched him and said, I am willing to be made clean. And like that, he was healed. Same with Peter's mother-in-law. People feared fevers in the ancient world, much like when COVID first struck here. And 
people, you know, you'd be down there hoarding your toilet paper in the supermarket and someone would cough in the next aisle, you'd drop it all and run for your life. <laughs> uh, you didn't go anywhere near the person because the fever like that meant death. Like it's <laughs> but see, verse 14, Jesus went into Peter's house, he saw his mother, he wasn't asked, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, so he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to serve him. It's wonderful, isn't it? Caring, touches her and she's well again, restored. She's overjoyed. She's, she wants to serve Jesus. And so there's touch. But notice second thing is Jesus' word. He didn't need to touch people to heal him. He could just do it by speaking. Uh, the centurion knew all about the power of words. He said to Jesus, For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to this one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so he knows Jesus doesn't need to turn up at his house or touch his servant who's greatly suffering and paralysed. He, he said to Jesus, just say the word and he will be healed. And he was. He wasn't even near Jesus at the time. He lived out in the suburbs, presumably. Same in verse 16. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. No medicine, no rituals, no holy water, no magical items. He just spoke and it happened. And it happened because third thing Matthew wants to highlight is Jesus' authority, his power. That's really what the centurion understood. It's why Jesus commended him as a man of such faith because he had confidence in Jesus' authority. And he knew authority. He was a commander in the royal imperial army. He was under authority himself and he was the commander of 80 to 100 legionnaires. And he knew none of his men would ever mess with him because you mess with Caesar's command structure, you mess with Caesar himself and you're toast. So this man knew authority and he knew how to exercise it and he, he recognised it in Jesus and what authority he holds. In verse 26, Jesus commands the storm to stop and whooshka! Imagine walking outside at 3am last Friday in the middle of that storm and, and commanding it to stop. Right? Buckley's chance it would listen. <laughs> Jesus speaks and it stops. The, the way is completely still from raging cacophony to haunting silence. And the disciples are dumbstruck. They're, they're in awe of Jesus. As, who is this man? Who, who could do that? The demons who's destroyed the lives of these two men that no one can do anything about. Jesus orders the demons into the pigs and off the cliff they go to their doom. Such authority. But notice a fourth thing. This healing ministry of Jesus, Matthew tells us, was the fulfilment of scriptures. It's not accidental. It's not that he just turned up out of the blue. It's the fulfilment of scripture verse 17 he did these things so that what was spoken through the prophet isaiah might be fulfilled he himself took our weaknesses 
and carried our diseases. Now Isaiah was uh, writing about 700 BC, but he spoke of a time when, uh, when, when a servant would come from God, a servant who would suffer terribly, even be killed in some violent, horrible way, uh, but a servant who would be God's servant, loved by God, godly in every way, even though he would suffer. In fact, we're told his suffering was going to come at the hands of God. And the reason was that the punishment that we deserve for our sin, the, the curse that we are under of sickness and pain and death for our rebellion, it would be laid upon him. But he'd willingly take it upon himself, the sin and punishment of the whole world, all of our sickness, all of our death. Uh, here it is again on the screen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to take our sins, our punishment, our the pain, our death upon himself. That, that, that's what he was here to do. He wouldn't do that fully for a couple of years until later when he would die on the cross, completely innocent, the godly servant of God, free of the sin that the rest of us by nature have. But he would die there despised, rejected, under the curse of God for us. And Matthew's telling us ahead of time that all of the miracles that he was doing all the healings, they, they were a sign, they were a symbol, pointing towards the fact that that was what he was come, he'd come here to do. He was here to deal with suffering and evil and death. He wasn't doing amazing things to prove the existence of God to atheists. He wasn't doing it to impress people. He was doing it because to love people, to free people, to be this servant and save. He... So notice fifth, the popularity of Jesus. Wherever he goes, crowds flock to him. They'd expected the new age when the Messiah would come and overcome sickness, paralysis, demons and death. And, and when he came and he did them, they, they flocked to him from everywhere and anywhere. And why not? Um, the same thing would happen today, wouldn't it? If, you know, if someone came to Ingleburn who could, who could just heal by a word. Maybe if I could do it, if I could just say it and I, all your eye problems would be gone and the glasses fall off and your headaches and you know, your cancer. And just by, if I could cure COVID, there'd be a queue right around the industrial area, wouldn't it? And right up to Minto. <laughs> and they, they'd be here for church. Even at 8 o'clock in the morning. They'd... 
And next week they'd be flying in from New Zealand and Darwin. And <laughs> it's not going to happen with Joe Wiltshire, sorry. <laughs> but it did happen with Jesus Christ. Jesus was really doing these things and everyone knew it. And so they came in their thousands to see the Messiah they expected. I think some come in just to see the spectacle, but others to be healed and others to, is it real? And, but that's, I think, when we meet the unexpected Messiah. In so many ways, Jesus was nothing like anyone expected. They'd expected some of those things. But you see in verse 18, it's the kind of verse that you just skip straight past if you're reading it, but, but notice how strange it is. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee, north of Israel. What does Jesus do when he sees the crowds coming for him? He deliberately turns his back on them. He hops in the boat, goes where they cannot go. In fact, it's overseas, it's another country, it's, it's pagan territory, it's outside of where the people of God go. It's, Jews don't go to the Gerasenes. They, they wouldn't be caught dead there. No one knows him there. <clears throat> I reckon for most people, that's pretty unexpected, isn't it? It's certainly not what the gurus and the so-called faith healers do today, is it? They, they lap up the attention. And this isn't the only time that Jesus runs from the crowds. He's done it before in Matthew's Gospel. He'll do it again. In fact, we're told in John chapter 2, one of the other biographies of Jesus, that Jesus especially wanted to avoid crowds who came because of his miracles. John tells us Jesus didn't trust people who came because of miracles in John 2. He didn't come to impress anyone. He didn't come to draw crowds. He wasn't there to flog merch or ask people to sow a seed of faith by phoning in their uh, donations like so many do today, he was here to bear the sins of the world. Who did he trust if he didn't trust them? Well, who of all the people does Jesus commend in Matthew chapter 8? You notice? The centurion who believed without having had the miracle. That's the one Jesus trusted and commended. Hearing this, verse 10, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Here's the enemy of God's people. The one they hated. The kind of guy that the Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow. <laughs> and he's commended. Jesus likes it, he trusts him. <laughs> but there's something else unexpected about Jesus. When, when people offered to follow him, he made totally unexpected demands on them. Verse 19, a scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now there's a willing to say, wow. Someone said that to me, I think it was a bit creepy, but, uh, yeah, but, but someone will go anywhere with him. <laughs> But Jesus said to him, foxes of dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You want to follow me? Not going to be easy. I'm not going to offer comfort or ease. I'm not going to jolly you along, give you a nice hotel. Another comes and says, Lord, just, just come, but let, let me go and bury my father. Then I'll come follow you. That seems pretty reasonable. 
can't take that much time unless maybe the guy's still alive. But yeah, uh, 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 aren't we supposed to honour our parents? But Jesus said, leave the dead to bury the dead. If you're coming with me, it's now or never. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? Turning people off. Not a great way to get return customers, is it? But you see, Jesus wasn't here gathering up as many followers as he could. He was the suffering servant. He didn't come just to dispense quick healing to people, as many people as he could. If that was his aim, I think he's been a pretty big failure. Because in the last 2,000 years since he's been here, there's been a lot of sick people. And with the exception of those still alive today, every single one of them's died. In fact, even the people who didn't get sick died as well. (laughs) Everyone's faced disaster, everyone faces decay. In his day, he healed hundreds, thousands perhaps, but only in one area and only for a couple of years. And even then, he didn't do everyone he could. But he was here really to deal with the root cause, to deal with sin, to bring cleansing from the thing that had brought the curse of sin and death, the curse of death in the first place, to open the way into God's eternal kingdom where God's promise of no more mourning and sorrow and pain and death it would be wiped away. He was opening the way to that. But notice the final unexpected thing. That is the unexpected people who were saved and entered God's kingdom. Every single one of them, I think, is unexpected. The leper, outcast of the world, a man under the curse of God who went around declaring himself unclean, he entered the kingdom. The centurion, the man responsible for the oppression of God's chosen nation, He entered in. Jesus says in verse 11 that people from all over the world who who seem to have no place in the kingdom of heaven will be there while those who thought they'd have front row seats, they're going to miss out. Two pagan men, both crazed, possessed, no one wants anything to do with them. They're they're cleansed and become citizens of God's kingdom. It's It's not who you expect, is it? The kingdom belongs to those who will take Jesus at his word, who will trust him, who will follow him no matter what may lay ahead, who in particular will trust that he is the Messiah who has taken your sins upon himself to bear your illness, to die your death for you on the cross. He's who we're being called to know and to trust Jesus, who is the Messiah, the one who holds the keys to God's kingdom and who has come in God's plan and wisdom to deal with evil and suffering and disaster and death, but who has gone to the cross to deal with it and who has conquered death by rising again from the grave. If God was all good and God was all powerful, surely he'd do something about evil. He has. In the Lord Jesus Christ. I asked you to ponder two questions before, but there's really only one question you need to resolve. Where do you stand with him? Will you trust him? The leper, he came to Jesus knowing that he was able to save. He wasn't sure he was willing. Jesus was more than willing. The centurion came knowing he was both willing and able. Just say the word. And Jesus did. Such faith. Will you trust Jesus 
like that man did. Because it's only people who trust him like that, who rely on him, who will be his for eternity. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, well I guess those who thought they deserved it at least, will be thrown into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where do you stand with him? Our Father, we come to you today, I guess some doubting, some joyful and already bowing to the Lord Jesus. But Father, we ask that we would be those who trust like the centurion, knowing that Jesus is willing and able and that we would put our lives under your authority, his authority. Forgive us our sins and thank you that Jesus has come to deal with them. Thank you, he has conquered sin and death and the devil and has risen again in your life. Help us in the midst of our sorrows and sicknesses and pain to look to him knowing his promises are sure, that he has opened the way and that that time of mor when mourning and crying and pain will be gone is still coming and it, it is certain. Please work this in us for your sake and glory. Amen.